Hey folks, I know there's a lot going on right now. As companies are going remote, businesses are shutting down, and we're all working on social distancing during the COVID-19 pandemic, we here at Simply Stated have also gone remote. In the coming weeks, we are completely retooling our programming to focus on the coronavirus pandemic, looking at steps regulators are taking to strengthen and protect the financial system, and giving advice for bankers and consumers alike during this time. One big thing that you're hearing about in the news right now is all the steps the Federal Reserve is taking to stave off the economic impact of the pandemic. The Fed has cut interest rates to near zero, is restarting quantitative easing like it did during the 2008 financial crisis, and it's actively trading in something commonly referred to as the repo market. But this isn't the first time in the last year that the Fed has been working in the repo market. Last fall, another far less noticed crisis occurred in that market that led the Federal Reserve to intervene. So, just a few weeks ago, I talked with an economist who could better explain to me what the repo market is, why the Federal Reserve sometimes participates in the repo market, and what exactly happened last fall. Even though the recording is only three weeks old, some of the information you hear is going to feel dated due to recent developments. But the story and lessons in it are even more relevant today than they were at the recording. So we decided to provide it to you anyway. Please keep up with us in the coming weeks. We've got a lot more coming. I'm Matt Longacre, and this is Simply Stated. Okay, so today I am joined by Tom Seams. He's the senior economist here at CSBS. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are here to talk about something that I really don't understand, but I know that there was a lot of news about this in the fall. And we're going to talk about what the heck happened in the repo market. So before we even get into the news itself, um, explain like I'm five, what is the repo market? Well, you've probably heard of the repo man Mm -hmm. well it's not related at all to the repo man so of course the repo man um you know if you have a auto loan Mm -hmm. and uh, you're not paying it and he comes and takes away your car yeah well even though it's called the repo market it's not the same at all it's uh, really short for repurchase agreements Mm -hmm. so this this is how it works imagine that i have a uh, a big pile of treasury securities. Mm-hmm. And we'll just say they're valued at $100 just to make it easy. Mm-hmm. And let's say that you have a whole bunch of cash, a whole mm-hmm. bunch of money. Well, I might want to not sell my treasury securities, but I'd like to have some cash to fund some short-term operations of some kind or meet some obligations that I might have. And you would like to earn some money on that cash and at very low risk. Mm-hmm. So what a repo is, or a repurchase agreement, it's basically a, a short-term loan that says, I'm going to sell my treasury securities to you and use it as collateral. In exchange, you're going to give me $100. And I agree to repay you or buy them back, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, that's the repurchase part of it. I'll buy it back for, say, $101. Mm-hmm. So you'll earn a quick buck. And the rate 
that is earned, and these are typically overnight loans. Mm-hmm. The rate that is earned is, is annualized, and it's called the repo rate. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you'll also hear about um, reverse repo agreements, and mm-hmm. it's really just the mirror of that same transaction. So in a reverse repo, one party, one party um, buys securities, and they agree to sell them back in the future, uh, again, at a higher price. So you say it's an, it's an overnight lending uh, situation. And so what you mean is that it is just a transaction that happens for a day. That's correct. So uh, why is this so important in today's financial market? What, is, what does this achieve? What does it do? So really, there's, there's a couple of things. I mean, one is um, there are huge trades going on every day. The average is usually anywhere from two to four trillion dollars uh, that's traded in the repo market every single day. But probably a bigger reason is that the Fed has changed the way that they conduct monetary policy since the um, financial crisis that we had in 2008 and 2009. And so now they're they're using the repo market as part of a way to conduct monetary policy. So part of that then is kind of understand that, but then the Fed also has their Fed funds rate, right? Uh, what is that and why should we care about that? Right. So the, the Fed funds rate is the rate that the Fed has always targeted um, to kind of create this benchmark interest rate for um, you know, short-term loans. Uh, basically, the Fed funds rate is the interest rate that banks charge one another for overnight loans. So the Fed requires all banks to hold um, some percent of deposits in either vault cash or on reserve at the Fed, hence the name Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. So so there's these minimum reserve requirements that uh, all banks have to meet. Mm -hmm. Well, each day, people are going in, making deposits, taking out loans, paying off loans, taking money out of the bank, and at the end of the day, um, to calculate this reserve requirement, they look at a fraction of the deposits. Let's say it's 10%. I mean, it could, it's probably some other number, but they take some fraction of the deposits and they say, these are your required reserves. So some banks at the end of the day um, haven't met their reserve requirement, and other banks at the end of the day have excess reserves. And so the way they used to do it prior to the financial crisis was those banks that had the excess reserves would lend them overnight to the banks that had not had enough, and that was the Fed funds rate, or that is the Fed funds rate. It's the interest rate on those transactions. So you said that the Fed changed the way it conducts monetary policy following the financial crisis. So do they still target the Fed funds rate? Do they still use that? Yes, uh, that's the short answer, but it's a lot more complex today than it used to be, and it's fraught with a a lot of uncertainty and potential volatility, Mm -hmm. which is what we'll get to when we talk a little bit more about the repo market. So just to kind of back up for a second, Mm -hmm. during the financial crisis, the Fed went to extraordinary measures, you know, to make sure that the financial markets had the liquidity needed to function um, as smoothly as possible. So remember QE, quantitative easing? Yes. (laughs) So uh, once the Fed dropped the Fed funds rate to near zero, they still had to provide the economy with a lot of monetary stimulus. 
and um, engage in transactions that directly influence longer-term interest rates. So within the Fed, QE is known as LSAP. It's a large-scale asset purchases. Mm -hmm. And so during the financial crisis, they purchased more than $3 trillion of longer-term treasury notes and mortgage-backed securities. So they kind of broadened the um, instruments that they bought. And then money from those um, purchases went directly into the banking system and created a lot of excess reserves, mm-hmm. and just tons of excess reserves. And so with all this new money that was out there, um, and the Fed was now trading in different securities, all kinds of different maturities, they basically lost their ability to control the Fed funds rate by buying and selling securities like they used to. So the Fed had to move to what they called a, um, a new framework called ample reserves or an ample reserves regime. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? So um, really what that means, I mean, uh, going back to the prior to the financial crisis, you could call that a scarce reserves re- regime because, you know, the, they're directly influencing the Fed funds rate. With this ample reserves framework, for the first time, the Fed started to pay interest on banks' um, required and excess reserves. And they also began trading in the repo market. So there's a, a rate out there called the IOER. That's the um, rate of interest on excess reserves. I mm-hmm. guess technically it would be the interest on excess reserves rate, IOER. Mm-hmm. And this effectively puts a lower bound on the Fed funds rate. Because, you know, what banker is going to lend at a lower rate than they can get from the Fed, right? right? So you're not going to do that. Um, But by law, the Fed can only pay banks' interest on excess reserves. And there's a lot of other players out there. There's hedge funds and money market mutual funds and some of the GSEs and others. And they want to make short-term loans to banks as well. And they might be willing to to lend below the IOER. So to put a floor on that market, and by the way, that puts an upper bound on the Fed funds rate target, the Fed created what's called the Overnight Reverse Repurchase Agreement Facility, the ONRRP. And there's something called the ONRRP rate where um, it's another administered rate. It's a rate that they set. And now when you want to try to follow the Fed funds and when they – give a Fed funds target, they give a range, and mm-hmm. it's between those two administered rates. So currently, the IOER is set at 1.5%, and the ONRRP rate is at 1.75%, and then the Fed funds trades usually right in the middle. Right now, it's at 1.58%. So if I'm understanding you correctly, then the Fed is using the interest rate on excess reserve to set a floor uh, on on the overall rate in the economy. And they're also utilizing the repo market uh, to try and conduct more monetary policy and keep that rate within a certain range, even though other people are lending to banks as well and they might try to lend at a lower rate than the Fed is. So um, as far as I understand, since they started doing this, there's only been a couple days where the overnight funds rate has gone over the Fed target and it's become it's come back down pretty quickly. But it seems like on September 17th, something really dramatic happened. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it was a big surprise. Mm-hmm. 
So just put everything as far as the numbers go in context. Just before September 17th, the overnight repo rate was trading around 2.25%. And on the 17th, it skyrocketed to almost 10%. And interestingly, even at that rate, there were a lot of banks with excess reserves that wouldn't or didn't lend to those offering the higher rate. And this volatility actually pushed up the effective Fed funds rate to 2.3% um, when its range was between two and two and a quarter at the time. So it, it, it took it out of the, out of the range. So, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of explanations on this, I guess. There's, there's some common explanations, and I can get some of those. But are you familiar with the story of Icarus? Yes. Yes, in Greek mythology, mm-hmm. Icarus and his dad are trying to get off the island, and, and so his father comes up with a, a way to create wings and uh, uh, use wax and feathers to make these wings, but he ignores his son, don't fly too close to the sun. Mm-hmm. Of course, what does he do? He flies too close to the sun, wings melt, falls into the ocean and drown. So I don't want to take that visual too far, but in my opinion, the Fed too flew too close to the minimum level of banking reserves needed to keep those rates in check, and uh, particularly that overnight repo rate. So um, from what I understand, uh, there all these banks need these excess reserves. There's a legal requirement for them to have a certain amount of excess reserves in the bank. And a couple moves by the Fed, um, and I, I, I believe there was also... Um, uh, some companies who were paying their taxes at the same time uh, sort of combined made it so that the available funds dropped pretty quickly just as these banks were seeking excess reserves. And that kind of that kind of what made it spike? It is. But what's interesting is um, those things should have been expected. Mm-hmm. Everyone should have known that that these events were coming up. So it's true. The most common explanation is that we got these two big events that happened on that day, and both of them resulted in higher-than-expected demand for cash. One was it was settlement day for a large volume of Treasury securities, and the second one was it was the due date for these quarterly corporate tax payments. So both events um, required a, a large transfer of bank reserves to the U.S. Treasury. And as these reserves were drained from the financial system, the demand for cash increased and the rates rose. But the way I look at it, both events were known in advance and should have been anticipated. So in other words, neither of these events was a surprise, and it's events that are surprises that really increase volatility and uncertainty. So then what did come as a surprise? So if the Fed knows that the taxes are being paid then, and they, they know that they're going to pay out on on treasury bonds and securities and then purchase more and there's going to be this huge cut in available liquidity what's what caught everyone by surprise what happened so the fed the 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 surprise that i think that happened here was that the fed misjudged the minimum level of excess reserves that banks want to hold or perhaps feel that they're compelled to hold um, so in other words, we quickly went from this ample reserves environment to one with scarce reserves where the banks seemed unwilling to lend their excess reserves no matter what the potential um, return that they could get. So how does the Fed determine this level of ample reserves when they're making this calculation? So 
Um, I'm going to have to back up a little bit here and explain a little bit about the size and the composition of the Fed's balance sheet. So, you know, like all financial institutions, the Fed's balance sheet has liabilities, which is uh, mainly currency and bank reserves, both the required and the excess reserve. And they have assets, and it's mainly treasury securities. But now since the financial crisis, they've added um, some mortgage-backed securities. Um, before the financial crisis, the Fed's balance sheet was about $900 billion. Mm-hmm. And they had no excess reserves on the liability side, and they had no mortgage-backed securities on the asset side. And um, most of those treasury securities were held in short-term maturity um, instruments. When the Fed finally ended that asset purchase program, which is QE1, QE2, QE3, mm-hmm. uh, in, in 2014, um, the Fed's balance sheet had ballooned to $4.5 trillion. So we went from $900 billion before the crisis to $4.5 trillion. And the excess reserves part of that was $2.7 trillion. So then they started to shrink the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. And they got a, li- a little more aggressive in 2017 to shrink it even further. So you can go look at these graphs of the balance sheet, and it, you know you can see it peak, and it's coming back down. And the amount of the excess reserves shrank to about $1.4 trillion um, in, in September. Mm-hmm. And so what the Fed does is they do some surveys of their banks, and they, and they try to figure out you know, how much banks will want to hold in excess reserves and they thought that it would be about $1.2 trillion. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently they miscalculated. Yep. And clearly on September 17th, banks wanted to hold more reserves than the Fed expected. So the Fed flew too close to the sun. And so that means that with the Fed pulling money out and these companies pulling money out to pay taxes, they basically created an accidental bank run. Yeah. Um, of course, with the bank run, uh, people would draw cash and then, you know, because they, they, they fear that the, the bank is going to run out of cash. So it's not maybe not quite the same, but it did cause fear and some panic in the repo market. Uh, there was a shortage of, of cash available to those who wanted to use their stacks of treasury securities as collateral. Um, but fortunately, the Fed's, you know, has this lender of last resort, and that allows them to add more more money to the financial system when it needs it. So the banks felt like they needed more reserves. The banks that had reserves didn't want to give them up. What exactly did the Fed do to get the rate back down uh, over the course of the next two days? So they they, they immediately started pumping money in, and they did it through the uh, reverse repo markets. Um, They added more reserves the financial system by they, they bought about 60 billion in short-term treasury securities uh, per month they've been doing this for about six months now um, since September 17th excess reserves are up about 250 billion dollars so I think we're back to ample okay so it's 11 years after the financial crisis um, several you know a decade after quantitative easing one two and three, would you consider this QE4? You know, that's really interesting that you say that. It does sound like QE4. Um, but it's interesting. The Fed has really gone out of their way in public speeches and in their official statements on the website and elsewhere. They are adamant that this is not another round of quantitative easing. 
um, and that the moves that they're making are purely technical measures to support the effective implementation of monetary policy. But there are a lot of skeptics um, because these are large-scale asset purchases, LSAPs, which Mm -hmm. is what the Fed calls QE. And the Fed's balance sheet is expanding again. It's growing again in line with the uh, amount of reserves they're pumping in um, um, uh, you know, through this uh, latest round. But there are two uh, important distinctions of this round of, you know, I'm not sure I want to call it quantitative easing, but it kind of looks like it. But if we were going to call it QE4, it does differ from QE1, 2, and 3 in two important ways. One is the other ones, um, we're trying to reduce long-term interest rates. Mm-hmm. Operation Twist, you might remember some of those. You know, and they were trying to get borrowing again and try to get investors to hold more riskier assets. Well, this time they're pumping uh, liquidity directly into the banking system and not trying to influence uh, investors. And the second reason is that they're not trying to move their interest rate targets. They're sticking with those same targets they had, and they're also not trying to send any messages about where they want rates to be um, over time. So it's a similar process to the previous quantitative easing, but for different reasons. So maybe it's a a bit of marketing there to make sure people don't think that they're panicked about the economic situation. It could be, but it's also, you know, as they tried to judge the amount of excess reserves that the financial system was going to hold, well, they got it a little bit wrong. Mm -hmm. And so these events that took place that were big events, um, it ended up um, taking them somewhat by surprise. So obviously they still want to draw down their balance sheet in the long term, but they also want to avoid doing this again. So what is the Fed going to do to make sure this doesn't happen again? There's a lot of uh, discussions going on um, within the Fed and, and elsewhere about what uh, what needs to happen. Um, my opinion is that you know I think that they'll create a permanent repo facility um, to lend a certain amount of cash to these repo borrowers every day, and this would keep that rate and the and the Fed funds rate in within those um, administered target ranges that they have. And, uh, uh, you know, it may act somewhat similar to today's discount window. Okay. So they're trying to just make sure that they can take the slack out of either end of the market as they're drawing down. Yeah. Yep. But I don't know what that's going to do to the size of the balance sheet. I have, you know, I almost have to wonder if it's just going to stabilize from here, if they're not going to be able to draw it down much more than where it's at. So outside of that, um, if all these things are expected and the Fed, you know, might have made an error in how how much reserves belongs out there, is there anything else we should be concerned about that might be straining the repo market that that this kind of showed or revealed that we didn't know before? You know, there are a couple other um, trends and potential problems that I think are are worth mentioning here uh, that I think may have contributed to the Fed's lack of control uh, in the repo market. So I've been concerned for many years about the growing national debt. So total U.S. federal government debt is now more than $23 trillion, and our annual deficits are 
a trillion dollars a year and expected to even even be more over the next several years. And all this additional debt results in increasing amounts of collateral to use in the repo market. And it's increasingly challenging for the markets to absorb and digest all of this additional debt. And it results in you know, a lot more complications for the Fed and also for regulatory policy. And then speaking of policy, it's also possible that some of the new rules that require banks to hold adequate capital levels and meet certain um, liquidity requirements has led some of the banks to hold more excess reserves than what policymakers expected and anticipated. So uh, part of what you're saying then is that uh, as the debt continues to climb, the Fed might uh, lose leverage on one of their tools to help stabilize the market. It'll be harder for them to issue treasury bonds and, and, and influence the market in the way they want. Yes, it's going to be more difficult. All right. So um, hate to leave on a dour note, but that, uh, <laughs> that is kind of where we are. Um, thank you so much, Tom, for giving us this information. It's a lot to digest. It's a pretty technical topic, so uh, you did a great job at making it as simple as you could, but I, I just don't know if it can get any simpler than that. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. If you want more from Simply Stated, please subscribe through your favorite podcast app or go to csbs.org, head to the newsroom, and subscribe using our form on the right. If you subscribe to our blogs, you will get the podcast straight to your inbox. As COVID-19 continues to impact the financial system, we'll be providing more podcasts on impacts and how regulators are tackling the epidemic. Thanks for joining us. This was Simply Stated.